The call to worship this morning may be found in Psalms 91, verses 9 to 13, which may be found on page 551, your pew Bible. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Today's scripture reading will be from John 3, 11 to 15, and can be found in your pew Bible on page 979. Now I'll be reading from the new EMT version. Most assuredly I say to you, that which we know we speak, and that which we have seen we bear witness to, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has gone up into heaven except he who came down out of heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The New Testament reading is found in the Pew Bible on page 1125. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Amen. This notion of lift up, or being lifted up, takes two main directions in our sermon today. There are others that we could cite and note, and you may hear reference to some of those today, but we're looking at God's promises. Now, it feels a little artificial to me. I hope it doesn't feel a little artificial to you. <laughs> but it feels a little artificial to me to divide out all of these promises from week to week because when Christ says he's going to lift us up, it feels to me not too dissimilar from Christ promising to protect me or to hold me or to keep me in some way. Especially in light of what our psalm says today. Let's go back to that text and remind ourselves of the promise that so many of us are familiar with. I'm referring, of course, to Psalm 91.
In verse 9, we have the beginnings. The Lord is my refuge. It says, if you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Lord the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. Now, this I want to highlight right away as part of something we've talked about in the last couple of weeks that I want us all to understand when we talk about God's promises. Too many Christians, I think, take a snippet, a soundbite. It's very much like the news today. We take a one-liner, we memorize it, and we think that that's the way it's going to be for us and God. And when it doesn't get fulfilled according to our vision and our terms, we believe God has let us down. Bad God. How disappointing. And yet, right off the bat, the context for God's promise is set very firmly and very securely in this passage. We just don't often want to pay attention to it. And that is to say that the promise has a part for us to play, a role in this relationship which in the time of Israel is covenantal. It's covenantal now as well, only much, much, much more strongly and in a different way. The explicit covenant between God and Israel was one of obedience and one of protection, to put it in the simplest of terms. So, the psalmist tells us in poetic form, if you say the Lord is my refuge and you make, you actually follow through with that. Have you caught this? You make the most high your dwelling. What does that mean? It means that we abide in New Testament terms in Christ. John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. It means in Old Testament terms that we make our house in the house of God. That is to say, by covenant, by observance, by obedience, we dwell in his will, in his house as it were, in his covenant forever. We are part of Israel to whom the promise was extended. I will make of thee a great nation. Okay. I will give thee a land. If we do these things, then verse 10, no harm will overtake you and no disaster will come near your tent. God had that kind of relationship with Israel. When they were within his will, he kept them from harm. When they were uh, idolatrous and breaking covenant and going their own way, uh, natural as well as military and other kinds of problems plagued them in this particular uh, time frame and understanding this matrix of dealing with God. Verse 11, and here's the, where the promise comes that we're familiar with. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's pretty powerful. God will send his angels to take charge of our lives in such a way that we will be held up to the point of not even stubbing our little toe. 
boy, I bet most parents wish they could provide that level of protection for their children. We're trying awfully hard. It's making their world really weird and creating all kinds of people who can't cope with anything. So we're on the wrong path there somewhere. You're laughing because it's true and very tragic. We're protecting our children to the point of making them incompetent at about... Well, anyway, I won't digress. Lose my train of thought completely here. We have this dash your foot against the stone and it shows up in a very interesting place in the New Testament. Jesus has gone into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to pray and to be tested as it were, tempted by the devil. And one of the temptations that comes to him is to jump from a high place. And Satan quotes Psalm 91 to Christ. Are you of so little faith, my dear Christ? Are you of so little faith that you don't know what the scripture says concerning this? Why, God is going to send the hosts of heaven. It's going to lift you up so that you won't even strike your foot against the stone, let alone smash yourself to smithereens on the rocks below. Jesus says, you want to play that game? Both of us can quote scripture. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. I love, I love that about Christ. Talk about a ready comeback. Don't you wish you knew the scriptures that well? Well, he did. You want to play that game? Okay, let's go. I'm going to make it hurt. I just love it. It gives me a great sense of admiration. You think, you know, we have sometimes these caricatures or these um, Renaissance sort of images of Christ as effeminate at best and a real pansy at worst. No. No. This was a guy who knew how to sculpt rock. This was a man of such intellectual and spiritual capacity that nothing got past him. This was a man who was so self-possessed and I don't mean that in the egotistical kind of way. I mean that he was full of the spirit, full of his sense of purpose and identity. He didn't flinch when Satan came after him. Here this wonderful promise is that even the Jews knew He's going to send the host of heaven. They're going to lift you up so that you don't even strike your foot against the stone. Why not jump? We're the ones who don't know better. We're often the ones who jump. God will lift us up. That promise is there. But we make our dwelling with the Most High. Did you catch the words of our opening hymn today? I'm going to grab a hymnal and invite you to turn back to that particular hymn. Now I am clear, as you should be, that the hymns are not scripture themselves, but are often quoting scripture based in scripture. 
And this hymn does a particularly good job of summarizing a number of things that are very true about our experience spiritually. We have a firm foundation that's laid in the Word of God, verse 1 says. When we have turned to Christ, we can be on no more solid ground than that. Verse 2 admonishes to move, us to move from the house of fear in which we have lived to the house of love. For God is with us. Let us not be fearful or dismayed. He will come to our aid, strengthen, help us, and cause us not to stumble or fall, but to stand. It is His righteousness, it is His power, his omnipotent power by which he does so. In other words, there's no chance he will fail. Verse 3, though, tells us how it is in our experience. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, our lives are not therefore easy, nor free from threat, or trouble, or trial, or pain. Deep waters imply risk. Deep waters imply danger. The rivers of sorrow won't overflow. I will be with thee. Your troubles to bless. And sanctify you your deepest distress. For when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient will be your supply. In other words, however difficult, whether by water or fire. Isn't that what we say by trial? By, by water or fire? These elements of risk? His grace will be all-sufficient. For the flame shall not hurt thee. What's that a reference to? I think it was spoken of perhaps last week. Four were these standing. Ah, but the fourth is like unto the Son of God. That fiery furnace. But more to the metaphor, the answer comes at the end of this verse. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. In other words, our lives and the journey through them are not free of risk and trial and difficulty, but are meant to establish within us character, to develop within us a capacity and a tolerance, a faith and a trust. The soul that on Jesus has learned, leaned for repose, is to say the soul that rests in God, the person who's learned to trust, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. I will always be with thee. I will never leave thee. We spoke of that a couple of weeks ago. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. So that's a powerful set of words we have in our hymn that we just sang this morning. 
So Psalm gives us this promise that we have, this notion of being lifted up for the sake of something akin to protection, for something akin to uh, God's presence mediating and uh, interfering with the trials or problems that we might experience. We get something uh, entirely different with the notion of lifted up in John chapter 3. So let's go there. This phrase list, lifted up gets used in description of Christ himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. For reference to an old, old story, it's found in Numbers 21. Why don't we turn there? Chapter 21, verse 4. Israel is on its journey to the promised land. And like our journey to the promised land, it's full of deviations. Do you know what I'm talking about? How many of our own trials are self-inflicted? Do you have any idea? How many of our own diseases are self-inflicted? 97% my wife wagers. Yeah, I think it's incredibly high. You know. It should be no mystery to us if we totally abuse our bodies and our cholesterol levels are off the charts and we don't do anything about it, that God should allow a heart attack to come at 40 or 50 or 60. This should not be, why has God allowed this? Why has God done this? This should not be a mystery to us. When we eat all kinds of carcinogenic things, when we abuse our bodies and uh, cancer strikes, we should not should not be surprised by this. But I'm forever surprised at how uh, it's the other way around. How many people in the midst of self-inflicted injury choose to blame God. Choose to blame God when they themselves have been given a path out or have chosen something by way of unfaithfulness. And Israel was no different. We are... This is why I think all of these stories are recorded for us is because our own lives just kind of mirror what happened in that long journey from Egypt to Canaan. We're just trying to get there. And God will do something great for us one day and by the next day we have forgotten it completely. The grace of yesterday's miracle is lost in the crisis of the moment. The faithfulness with, we, which, with which we pledged ourselves to God yesterday is lost in the temptation of the hour. We are by nature unfaithful creatures. That is why he is so remarkable because God is faithful. He will always stand by you even though your tendency and mine is to abandon him. And Israel gets caught in this cycle over and over and over again. And this is one of the instances. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea, then around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. Sound familiar? 
They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food you call manna. The story of the human experience. Now I'm not here to spend much time on causality, but the text does say, Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now this becomes uh, an antitype, really, for the type to come. You see. Christ will be lifted up and all who look upon him will live. That's where the story goes. So this snake, which has all kinds of symbolism, but is the serpent of the garden, uh, that which speaks to us of death, these are venomous snakes, is modeled in bronze and placed upon a pole and raised up. And the irony is, is that once bitten, if you look at this bronze image of the snake, you live. If you won't look at it, you might die or die. It's God's remedy for a people who've forgotten gratitude, who've forgotten to practice the awareness of his presence, who've forgotten to walk in his precepts, who've forgotten his many blessings and his care, who've forgotten his provision daily in a desert, who've come to grumble because the taste or variety along the way isn't what they'd hoped for, who've abandoned their sense of loyalty and purpose, who are asking that dreadful question, why has God not fulfilled his purpose in us but abandoned us to die? God will not abandon his purpose in you. There are deep waters and there are fieries, fiery trials, but he does not leave you to languish and die. And Israel makes that mistake again as we make that mistake daily. Moses lifts up the servant. Serpent. And later we find this referenced in John. John 12. Take a quick hop over there. I am sorry, I'm asking you to look at a lot of texts today, but I want you to see the relationships. John 12, 34. Let's back up to 30. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Referring, of course, to Satan. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. 
He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Those who walk in the dark do not know where they are going. Put your trust in the light while you still have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. The writer is making no mistake. The reference to light here goes right back to John chapter 1. Jesus is the light of the world. Walk in this light while you have it, he says. The writer connects these two things to help us understand that wrapped into one being we have the word who was with God who, who by all things created everything that has been created who was with God from the beginning, co-eternal. We have in John chapter 1 an explanation that the light has come into the world because this word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And now Jesus speaks in riddle again. Walk in the light while you have it. You may not understand correctly who the Messiah is or what he's to do. But I want to share with you something. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. That is the anathema of the cross. The pole on which the serpent is placed, the bronze serpent, for the people of Israel to look at and be healed from their snake bites, has become an enduring symbol of the medical profession. But the cross on which Christ was lifted up has become the universal symbol of something far greater the healing and the hope of all eternity. The forever movement from the house of shame and fear and loss to the home of love and life and gain. When we speak in scripture of Christ being lifted up, we speak of a bizarre, if I may even say so, perverse kind of exaltation. For in death he achieves his finest act of redemption. And there's a larger picture to this. If we lift up Christ, we're not speaking now of re-crucifying him. But we're speaking of exaltation. We're speaking of praise. We're speaking of a worship act that puts the universe in the order in which it is intended because God is therefore where we are making our dwelling. We're fulfilling Psalm 91 in that we're making our dwelling with the Most High when we exalt the Christ crucified. If I be lifted up. It's true in the moment of crucifixion and it's true in the long haul in terms of the effect of that crucifixion 
its salvation and its hope and its purpose and the Christ we exalt today. The last place I want to go with this is found in James 4.10. That's another text we haven't looked at today, but let's do. It was a song sung in my uh, hometown, repetitive, a chant, a round, but it was a wonderful piece of scripture. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. We sang it in the King James in a round. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Do you know it? Do you want to sing it? Oh, I know you're dying to do this. All right. So I'm going to start, and you're going to go second, and you're going to go third. Ready? Humble thyself in the sight of the... Okay, you got to be ready for the cue there. Right as I'm saying. All right, ready? Humble thyself in the side of the humble thyself in the side of the humble thyself in the side of the Lord. And he and he will lift, will lift you up higher and higher and he will lift you up. And you get this going and it's so nice when it goes. So we'll have to, have to revive that perhaps. But there it is, singing this scriptural piece. He will lift you up. But it's not stating that out of a blue any, is it? It's not an unconditional promise. What is it saying to us? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Was Israel being humble? When you're grumbling about God, you're not humbling yourself. When you're ignoring the Lord, you're not humbling yourself. When you decide that you know the path better than he does, you haven't humbled yourself. When you decide that you should be above the trials and tribulations that your very master went through, you haven't humbled yourself. When you refuse to look at the serpent raised for you, you have not humbled yourself. Humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up higher and higher. That's what the promise says. But let's look at the larger context. In James 4, the subtitle is Submit Yourself to God. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you can't get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Lord, I want a Ferrari. It's amazing to me that that prayer has not been answered. <laughs> you adulterous people. 
Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble and to the oppressed. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. That's what Jesus did. And he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Make him your dwelling. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that's what we are, isn't it? I love you, Lord. I'm headed my own way. I want what you have to offer, and I want to pursue my own way. Grieve, mourn, and wail. We do that, don't we? Mostly because of the consequences. How many of us say sorry before we're caught? Oh, I'm so aggrieved. Look at any senator or congressman apologizing for anything. It's because it's been on YouTube, Twitter, um, Facebook, and the TV news. And about that time, they're ready, when, with incontrovertible proof of their, their guilt, they're about ready to say, well, I'm, I'm really sorry that I sent those obscene pictures of myself to all of you. The scriptures invite us to grieve, mourn, and wail because we in our inner beings have come to some sense of the grief we've caused ourselves and our God. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. There's a text that says the opposite. He has taken our mourning and replaced it with laughter and given us singing and dancing. God raises up the humble and the oppressed. That is the context of humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Our text in 1 Peter is very, very similar. The text in 1 Peter helps us see very similarly what it is God's talking about. We read it as 1 Peter 5, 5-7. In the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, and it's quoted again, God opposes, opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. Humble yourselves therefore under God's almighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Oh, and then here's our other one-liner, right? That we just... We just highlight that one and memorize just this and we forget about all the rest. It's a promise. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. In this case, in the TNIV it says, cast all your anxieties or anxiety on him because he cares for you. It is time, Christians, that we move beyond the soundbite. 
it is time that we live the promise in its context and its entirety. Because the promises of God are sure. He will not fail. He will not leave. He will not abandon. He will not forsake. He will not give up. He will not quit. He is always adequate. He is omnipotently strong. He is omnisciently knowing. He is capable beyond your wildest dreams of capability. And he says, I will lift you up. But let's first humble ourselves. Let's make him our dwelling place. Let's lift high the Christ of the cross and exalt him first and always. And let's walk humbly with God in service to one another and this humanity for which our God died. It is time for us to return in thankfulness and joy a portion of that which God has blessed us with I would like to invite the ushers to collect our tithes and our offerings at this time. And so, Lord God, humble your people and lift them up. And we will lift you up, proclaiming your glory and your grace and your name forevermore. Amen.